Earners, what's up? Look, as an entrepreneur, the dream is to earn a living doing what you love. But let's face it, turning that dream into reality is no small feat. That's where Kajabi steps in, transforming challenges into opportunities. I've been there, juggling every aspect of my business, wishing for a simpler way to diversify revenue and grow my brand. Then Kajabi changed the game. It's an all-in-one platform that empowered me to not just build, but thrive. With Kajabi, creating online courses, membership sites, and more became not just possible, but easy. And the best part? I kept 100% of what I earned, thanks to Kajabi's no-commission policy. But Kajabi isn't just about tools. It's about building a profitable business with the support of robust analytics, easy payment options, and customizable templates all without needing a huge team or audience. Join me and thousands of entrepreneurs making six or seven figures on Kajabi, regardless of your audience size. If you're ready to turn your passion into profit, Kajabi is your next step to success. So what are you waiting for? Build, grow, and keep what you earn with Kajabi. Start your journey today. And right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash earn. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash earn. Kajabi.com slash earn. And join the entrepreneurs and creators who've made over $6 billion. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Head over there now. Earners, what's up? Look, in the world of personal finance management, finding the right tool is crucial. If you've been relying on Mint to keep your personal finances in check, I got a mix of news for you. Mint is closing down. But here's a silver lining. Monarch Money is stepping up as the go-to financial app, and users, including myself, are making the switch with a smile. Before Monarch, juggling my finances felt like navigating a stormy sea. Other apps either lacked features or were too cumbersome. Then came Monarch Money. Its ease of use, powerful features, and sleek design turned financial management from a chore into a breeze. The constant updates, well, that's the cherry on top. But what truly set it apart for me was its collaboration feature. Money matters constrain relationships, but Monarch brings peace to the table. The app's collaboration tools allowed my partner and I to seamlessly manage our finances together. We aligned on our budgets, tracked our cash flow, and even planned our future goals all in one place. Speaking of goals, be it saving for a down payment, your dream vacation, or your children's education, Monarch simplifies it all. It's no wonder the Wall Street Journal hailed it as the best budgeting app. This isn't just an app. It's the next generation of personal finance management, ad-free, intuitive, and always evolving with you in mind. Now look, Monarch isn't just another app. It's the all-in-one solution. From effortlessly importing your data from Mint to customizing your dashboard to your heart's content. Monarch respects your privacy with a strict no ads, no data selling policy. This is financial management as it should be, focused on you. Look, after trying Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top rated financial personal app. And right now, get an extended 30 day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash leisure. That's M-O-N a-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash leisure for your extended 30-day free trial. Earners, what's going on? Listen, EYLU is relaunching, revamping, retooling. That's right, we're creating a new educational experience that's more expansive. Shari, tell me what we got. Yes, 2023. We got a lot in store, a lot planned for you guys. So you know that EYLU already includes monthly financial planning calls with me, book club calls with Troy, 
real estate calls with MG the mortgage guy, access to the home buying blueprint, volume one and volume two. Part of the revamp will include 27 local chapters from across the United States, live interactive teaching, hands-on, not just pre-recorded videos, plus 15 brand new curriculums. The biggest just got bigger. Head over to EYLUniversity.com. That's E-Y-L-U-N-I-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y.com. See you there. So in marketing, they say cults become culture, meaning it's more efficient to just focus on a small group of people and have them be evangelist for you as opposed to just trying to spread yourself too thin because eventually those small group of people will grow osmosis and will become culture right yeah. it's like the 12 disciples right like eventually <laughs> this becomes two billion christians around the world one million percent i am always about vertical versus horizontal strategy so it's like zero in on who your core audience is and hyper, hyper penetrate that. All right, guys, welcome back. EYL, we back home. And um, we have a special guest, Erica Pittman, a uh, legend in the game when it comes to strategy and marketing. Worked with some EYL alumni that you might be familiar with, um, Al Harrington, Al and, Harrington and Viola and a um, few others. So you have the title of being the first black female CMO of a multi-state cannabis operator. Yes. Is that correct? That is correct. Over three decades of experience um, in music, fashion, and cannabis, and has worked with Aqua Hydrate. Viola is a author. We have a book um, and just has a lot of great insight on business. So, Thank you for joining us. Yeah, we, we have an expert here today. Yeah, so expert. it's good to have experts in the field. Yeah. That's important. It's very important. Yeah, so yeah, first and foremost, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so um, how did you, did I, well, did I do a good job of kind of framing your you career? You did a great job. The one thing you left out, though, was spirits, alcohol. That's not, let's not forget Ciroc. Let's not forget. And De Leon Tequila. De Leon Tequila. And a few others, and working with another vodka company, Yoko Vodka, okay, Polo to Don's company. So we got some fun stuff. We also forgot to mention Brooklyn. And Brooklyn. And you know the audience doesn't like when we don't mention Brooklyn. So shout out to Brooklyn. Shout out to Brooklyn. Shout out BK. You know, that's our biggest. New York. That's our, that's our <laughs> biggest market, actually. And there you go. Oh, see, so you're going to win now. Yeah. <laughs> we got a native. East New York. There it is. We got the natives. I guess. <laughs> East, East New York. East New York. Um. One of my favorite rappers is from East New York. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Well, he's not from East New York. I mean, from he's from Brooklyn. Yeah, but Who's your favorite rapper from East New York. Take a guess. With the MOB guy, what's his name? MOP. I think they're from Brownsville. Brownsville. Okay. They Brownsville. Um, AZ. AZ. AZ is from Brownsville. No, nah, he's from East New York. AZ. Yeah. He, he would know. It's his favorite rapper. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he was from Brownsville. Look at that. Okay. Sosa. That was one of my... Was, there you I, go. That era, that era, that's when I really fell in love with rap. The firm, him, Nas. But a, AZ always felt was extremely underrated. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. He's still he's still working. He's still making really great yeah. music. And mm -hmm. looks great. Shout out to AZ. Shout out to AZ. Shout out yep. to AZ. Yep. Yep. So, let's get into this. So, okay. all right. Um, how do you start your career? Right? Um... Coming from East New York, how, what's your break into the industry and which industry do you start first? Was it music, fashion, liquor? Like, how did you actually, you know, get your stride? You know, it's funny. I, I started in media. 
so media is a big big part of my um my expertise as well so i started at a small internet company a long time ago like a long time ago mid 90s long time ago i've been in the game for a minute i want to say it's 96. Okay. Okay. Myself, which is cool. Um, but yeah, I worked for a company called iVillage.com and they were like the first lifestyle website for women. And I was the 35th employee. I literally was just looking for a full-time job. I was in college and wanted to make some money. I was pay putting myself through college and wanted to work in advertising and they had a job opening and they hired me and amazing ride. Four years was a part of their IPO. Friends and family stock did really, really well. They ultimately got acquired by NBC. So I had experience in in that space very early on in my career, but loved advertising and marketing, but really needed something that was speaking to me culturally. And so I don't know if you guys know uh, Keith Klinkscales. Yeah, heard of him. Yeah, yeah. So he he I believe he he created Thirty for Thirty with ESPN. Mm -hmm. um, he's one of the uh, original pioneers in the culture. Also launched Vibe magazine. Um, Keith started a company called Vanguard Media. And they had um, three magazines, Honey, Heart and Soul, and Savoy. And Honey Magazine was like the essence for young black women, right? Essence at the time was a little bit more mature and, oh, your man left you and you got a divorce. I was <laughs> like, I'm 20. I don't know anything about that life. But Honey was fashion forward and makeup and beauty and music and all the things I loved. And I was like, you know what? I want to work at this magazine. So I literally wrote old school, wrote my letters and my resume, mailed it out convinced them to um, sponsor a party at Howard University for Howard Homecoming. And they came in as a media partner and they loved the work that I did with my my cohorts, DSMs, who I'm sure you guys have heard. Yep, yep, yep. Also a Sean Combs alumni and uh, and genius in her own right. Uh, she and I had a company and we, we did an event with um, Mark Barnes in DC and got Honey to come down. They loved it. And they were so impressed that they hired me. And I went into sales for Honey Heart and Soul and Savoy for about four or five years. Then ultimately heard about me at Time Inc. They brought me over to Time Inc. to work at their publications there. And then Glamour Magazine recruited me. And then Vibe recruited me. And then Giant recruited me. And I was finding this whole pattern of people seeing excellence in the marketplace and calling me like, hey, we're here doing great things in the market. We'd love for you to be a part of our team. So that went on for about 15 years. And ultimately, I burned out like I can't keep doing sales and teaching people how to spend money with black people because it was a real challenge. It was like, no, black people buy shampoo. Mm -hmm. No, we buy cars. And it was constantly educating people to allocate money to us. But allocate money inside of the publications and outside of the publications. What exactly are we doing in sales? So I was selling advertising within the publication. So okay. when you go into a magazine and you see a print ad, I was literally selling those ads. Gotcha. So I would go to companies, you know, major companies like L'Oreal and, and some of the others, and they just really didn't understand the segment of the African-American audience in a way that made sense. And so they felt like they were capturing us if they ran a commercial on ABC or if they ran an ad in a white magazine or a general market magazine. And it's like, you need to be able to speak to us specifically in order for us to be loyal to your, you know, to your brands. So that went on for over a decade of constantly teaching people about, you know, our value. And I realized that print was a dying industry at the time. And I was like, I need to do something different. And I'm really good at marketing. That's the reason why I'm selling the way that I'm selling and advertising. And I just started taking a bunch of informational interviews. And I sat down with this woman, her name is Amani Duncan. And at the time she was the CMO of Bad Boy Worldwide Entertainment Group now Combs Enterprise, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it used to be BBWEG. <laughs> now it's actually, it's Combs Global now. 
Combs Global. And uh, she asked me what my dream job would look like. And I just told her what it was. It was this hybrid between, you know, marketing and strategy, but still monetizing paradigm and monetizing process. And she was like, this sounds exactly like what we're trying to create for our internal agency, Blue Flame. So what what does a CMO actually do? As a chief marketing officer. Chief marketing officer. So what what's it what's the role of a CMO? So it, that's a great question because so many people are CMOs and right. So <laughs> so a CMO is actually the head leadership of the strategic rollout of the actual brand. So internally and externally, the CMO works with communications, for instance, to understand what is our mission and purpose of the company and how are we executing that mission and purpose internally and externally. So how are we educating and uh, informing our employees, our investors, our stakeholders? Are all of those communications in line with what we say we stand for and what we say we believe in? And then to that end, we are responsible for generating X amount of revenue with consumer base. So how are we messaging to our target consumer in a way that speaks to our mission and our purpose and keeping all of, keeping track of all of that constantly and making sure that's a well-oiled machine for as little money as possible. Uh, that was going to be my next thing. It was, there's a budget that you're given. And so <laughs> I mean, talk about that part. Like you're doing the most with sometimes less the least. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you're making magic happen. So there's there's three types of impressions. There are owned impressions, which is earn your leisure. You guys own your impressions, right? Uh, there are earned impressions, which is publicity, PR, or as Puff would always say, guilt by association. And then there's paid impressions, and that's where you're spending money for media dollars, right? So there's three ways of generating So what's that again? Visibility. What's the first one? It's owned. What's that? Owned impressions are your own impressions. So however many followers you have on social media, however many followers you have on YouTube coming to earn your leisure to view, you know, view your content. Those are your impressions. You own them. Organic reach. Organic reach. And then what's the second one? Earned. What's the, what's the earned? Earned media impressions are press. Are okay, somebody writes an article. Somebody writes an article. You go on a podcast. Go on, you go on someone else's podcast. So I repost your content. Mm -hmm. Or I invite you to participate in an event or part a co-branded partnership and then you generate impressions based on that so you go on good morning america tomorrow those are all earned media impressions and then what's free. the third one and the third ones are paid and that's all advertising so that's sponsorship that's media Billboard, advertising billboards commercials that's yes above the line advertising so print out of home radio and digital are the four out of home excuse me above the line paid media. And then there's below the line paid media. So you could pay influencers. You could pay for pot product placement. You could pay for branded entertainment strategies, all sorts of below the line things you could do to pay for awareness and connectivity. And you've seen that shift, right? Because as from when you started, print was a thing. Yes. Not so much a thing anymore. Right. More money needs to go into digital. How have you navigated that? You know, it's been it's been great because one of the things that we did early on at Blue Flame and why we were so successful, but it was an uphill battle back then, is we were a below the line agency. So we hyper focused on influencer connectivity. We hyper focused on social media and digital media, which at the time people were buying Super Bowl commercials. 
And then that was it. We're going to spend $2 million on a Super Bowl commercial. Yeah, we did it. Whereas us, we wanted to actually take over Twitter and have, you know, the best handles for our brands and connect at a very organic level. And people just weren't using those strategies back then. So we had tremendous success in disrupting, disrupting in, um, in the category and in culture. And being an expert at that, obviously, 15 years later is, is really interesting to see. So... Okay, let's talk about these different types of strategies. Mm -hmm. So, because I have like a unofficial doctorate degree in marketing. I know, that's right. So <laughs> I have theories on this, but mm -hmm. I think that the organic way is probably like 10 times more effective than paid marketing, right? Absolutely. Um, it's more expensive. I mean, it's less expensive. It's, so it's less it expensive and it's more effective. As yeah. far as, so I was always taught like, you have to run like, I don't know exact numbers, but let's say like five paid ads to convert one person where organic, it might just be two, two yes. times somebody actually sees you and then they'll just start to follow you. Although it's like, that's what we've done. We've never paid for any marketing. It's all been through word of mouth. Yes. Um, it moves a lot faster and it's, it's a lot more trustworthy than just seeing constant ads. So if you were advising a client, how would you, advocate for them to grow their business effectively in today's world with dividing those three different things that you just said, like yeah. what's the strategy for a small business or just any size business that's looking to, you know, grow their marketing campaign? You know, so that's a really good question and it's hard to kind of sum it up in a nutshell. Cause I think it does depend on nuance because you're right. It, it is better. Meaning the stickiness around your connection with your, your consumer is better organically. But if your goal is to create awareness, right? Because there's awareness and then there's affinity. So awareness is people being familiar with your brand. If I say earn your leisure in Bangladesh, do they know where earn your leisure is, right? That's awareness, right? Like they know who Puff Daddy is in mm -hmm. Bangladesh, right? But affinity means they watch the Earn Your Leisure podcast. They come to the, you know, to the the conferences. They they know you by name and so they have that connectivity. So sometimes organic works best because you're trying to ultimately get to affinity. But if you are trying to quickly build awareness around your brand, paid media can be effective. Case in point, people um, that have e-commerce uh, companies nowadays buy social media ads for conversion, right? They want to sell their product. They run IG ads. The more ads they run, the more eyeballs they see, the more people convert. And they can do that very quickly because they have a transactional commodity. They're selling makeup, right? Or water. Whereas you guys are building an intellectual property. So it's more important for you to build organic connection because people need to think to understand why you're valuable. They don't need to do, they need to think. So it's a different, there's a different modality there. So it really does depend on what your brand is trying to achieve. But to the quick answer is you spend the biggest amount of your time on earned media. Earned media. Because people trust um, recommendation. So there's a trusted brand in Earn Your Leisure. And if Ian says, go buy Apple, which is what he always seems to say. <laughs> you see, I watch your podcast, shout, right? Shout out to Market Mondays. <laughs> Market Mondays. Ian says, go buy Apple. 
people are going to trust you guys and potentially at least go research Apple, right? So there's a earned, that's an earned media impression for Apple every single time Ian says that. You see the value? So if you go to earned first, you're going to not only get the association with whatever brand value that thing has, you're going to be introduced to expanded audiences. It's going to create all of these other tentacles for your brand that will automatically get you owned media impressions. Those are going to come because you convert people that way. And then you continue to connect with your owned media community. And once you start building up money, you make investment in paid and it becomes this nice ecosystem that works for your brand. So in marketing, they say cults become culture. Ernest, what's up? Look, you want to have a seat at the table, but what if you want a seat at an award show, a seat at Fashion Week, or a seat with the board of directors for a cause that excites you? A career that puts you in the driver's seat, where your passions become your purpose. Do you love the world of music, the excitement of high fashion, or perhaps you're driven by a desire to make a difference? No matter your passion, Accountants are helping to lead the way to keep the music playing, the runways alive, and communities thriving. Imagine being an accountant working in the music industry, working closely with your favorite artists on their financial strategies. Or picture yourself as an accountant working in fashion, an essential part of the production process helping designers thrive. Or how about an accountant working with nonprofits impacting the community by guiding fiscal decisions? Deloitte's Making Accounting Diverse and Equitable, or MADE, is here to help you seize that seat. They're redefining accounting, especially for high school and college students, with a core focus on making a difference. If you're on the hunt for a career where your passion meets potential, take a moment to visit Deloitte MADE's website at DeloitteMADE.com. Wherever important decisions are being made, accountants are helping to lead the way. The future of accounting starts with you. Mm-hmm. Meaning it's more efficient to just focus on a small group of people and have them be evangelist for you as opposed to just trying to spread yourself too thin because eventually those small group of people will grow osmosis and will become culture, right? Yeah. It's like the 12 disciples, right? Like eventually <laughs> this becomes 2 billion Christians around the world. What's your thoughts on that? Because that's something that a lot of people don't really do effectively either. Like they come out the gate and just try to just be all things to every, all people. Exactly. As opposed to really honing in and building a very small, tight knit community and then kind of just growing it like that. One million percent. I am always about vertical versus horizontal strategy. So it's like zero in on who your core audience is and hyper, hyper penetrate that audience. So get them in every place that they are passionate. So if your audience works nine to five, you probably should be targeting them from six to 10. You know what I mean? But if your audience is, if your audience are creatives, you have to figure out where those key touch points are for them and hyper-focus on those areas because you wanna get them when their mindset is in the thing that they are passionate about. So it's not necessarily just getting them, it's connecting with them in emotional moments that make sense for them so that they remember you. you when you talked about uh, paid media and you said you go under the line, and I'm wondering now, if you're doing that vertical method, how do you select the influencers, the, the media? Because a lot of times we'll hear black media, right? But when we think of that, we'll stick, in, we'll stay in that familiarity, but we won't get that 
notoriety from other brands. So how how did you or how do you navigate through that? It's again, it's nuanced because you have to prioritize what's most important to you first, right? Like, so if if you, the segment of the population is, I want eighteen to thirty four year olds first, right? There's a certain age group that you want to target, and then you might say, well, out of the eighteen to thirty four, I think that our brand skews more male, right? Which is a little unique now with with gender fluidity, but you know, there's do you do you target male conversations versus women conversations all of those things and then once you figure that out you start to say is there a factor around race is there a factor around geo targeting like do i target brooklyn like you said brooklyn's your number one audience versus weho los angeles right so you start to zero in on where your bullseye is and you spend your the most of your time in that space but you also look at the whole of that that segment as well. Does that make sense? So you're not trying to get 25 to 54 year olds. You're trying to get as many 18 to 34 year olds as possible. And then within that, you're carving out sub segments to figure out how to connect with them. And you do that based on a number of things. So um, another thing that's beneficial going back to the Ciroc thing mm -hmm. and even bad boy is good to have um, once we get, it's good to have ambassadors and evangelists. Mm -hmm. I like to say evangelists better than ambassadors. Mm -hmm. um, so, Ciroc Boys, the DJ campaign, that was extremely beneficial. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and uh, even with, you know, Bad Boy, the street team, nobody really does street teams anymore, but Rough Riders, they probably had one of the best street teams I've ever seen with all of those bikers and t-shirts. And you just, it just becomes so, you know, energetic that you just see everybody, you know, it, you just want to be a part of it. So talk about that as far as like how important is, is that when it comes to marketing? And yeah, I'm sure you was involved in some capacity with the Ciroc situation. So maybe you can talk directly to that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The thing that's part of the, that's part of that um, credibility factor that I was talking about. Right. And so figuring out ways to have other people speaking about your brand or thing on your behalf. That's all part of it. And, um, you know, bad boy, they were the, the kings of street teaming, right? The, the kings. And I think a lot of that strategy evolved into some of the things that we did at Blue Flame for Below the Line. I remember we did a campaign for, um, I don't know if you guys remember um, Puff's album, Last Train to Paris with Diddy Dirty Money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were trying to think of all of these amazing things that we could do. We wanted to take over Grand Central Station and the four train line and have a party on the train that landed a grant like craziness. Right. And at the time, it just wasn't wasn't feasible with the city. But we were like, what could we do that was disruptive? And so we literally we did this blast camp street team campaign where we took over the train signs like in the middle of the night. We posted fake train signs that said last train to Paris all over the city. And it caused this crazy ruckus and we got all kinds of news and noteworthiness for it and we literally had to take it down by a certain hour before we you know got penalized but it was a real strategy at like two o'clock in the morning we went out and post no bills plastered these you know these campaigns all over the, the city and literally by 12 they were gone like huh what posters and so everybody was just like what kind of magic trick was this and so doing really unique things like that in the marketplace was was a lot of fun you know taking over times square and it's just i think the the flash mob sort of comes flash from mob. that 
street team strategy, that street team methodology. Remember um, when they were trying to find a dude, Cody? Remember him? He, yeah, it was, it was. Yeah, this, these posters just kept going up it was, everywhere. So it was. A, it was like an African dictator allegedly that was like um, using child soldiers. So it was so crazy because one day I just woke up and I just saw like Rihanna had posted like it was like you know they had the Obama Hope yep. poster. Mm -hmm. so they they transformed that into like find Cody twenty eighteen or something like that. I forgot what year it was, but. Within one day, almost every major celebrity had posted it on their social media, and there was just like signs randomly all over the place. Amazing. Um, it's one of the most effective campaigns ever. Nothing really came of it, but I just still to this day it was just amazing that so many people was was really um just they didn't even know why they were posting mm -hmm. it. It was just like once one person posted it, then everybody else started to post it and then it just be it just went super viral. Diddy posted it. It went super viral. Um so yeah, I I just was always intrigued with that. But the flash mob, going back to your thing. The flash mob situation, I feel like um that's kind of been transitioned now because everything is social media. Yes. So yeah. now it's 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 not the same as it as it was previously. Um in some regards it's better because now you can post on social media mm -hmm. and then you can get people from all over the world but it doesn't have that same in-person effect effect yeah 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 i mean but you, you know you're talking 10 years ago so it it, it, it evolves no no the world the world changes the world changes sure. like yeah. you're not going to see street teams anymore right that's over yeah unless somebody brings it back you know what's funny? I don't think street teams are over. I, think I, I just don't see them. Do, you don't see them because it's like, how do you do it differently, right? Like, what what what's the new edge of the new? Because no, nothing beats face to face touch point communication. Nothing beats me talking to you about why my brand is great, right? But doing it in a way that makes sense for me. So I think fundamentally, street teams could still work. It's just the way that they do them has to change. Yeah. So even in transition and talking about you on a professional level, mm -hmm. you you've gone through different spaces right you started in media there's a tech component there's a cannabis component how has your approach changed with going through industries um do you know my approach has not really changed because fundamentally there's just a paradigm like i just broke down the three types of media right it's it's not rocket science it really is just understanding what your brand represents, where you're trying to take your brand and who you're speaking to, because the, 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 the rules don't change. The people do. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, street teams could still work. They just need to work differently because people don't interact in the same way they used to interact. So the same goes for, you know, the strategies. Like I, I know what works and what doesn't work in the marketplace. It's just understanding when to use it and how to use it depending on your audience. So at one, so you were employee for mm -hmm. Bad Boy, right? Yep. So you left at some point. Yep. And after eight, nine, nine, nine and a half times years being promoted. Oh yes, yes, you yes. Got to keep that part in. So you become self-employed? No, I yes, sort of, yeah. You can say that. I actually was a uh, project-based consultant for a few years, and I had a lot of fun. I worked with uh, Scott Mills at BET. Uh, for about 13 months, helping the team strategize their experience business. So, you know, the awards every yeah. year, mm -hmm. they have three days leading up to the awards called the BET experience. It's like this amazing consumer driven 
fan base, fan zone. And we were thinking about how we could scale that opportunity and take it global and do some really unique things pre-COVID. So that was a ton of fun. And then I got recruited by uh, Al Harrington to come over to Viola. And I just thought this really could be the Ciroc of cannabis. It was such an amazing brand. And I'd always wanted to work in cannabis, even from the time it became legal in Colorado. I was like, I would love to just move to Colorado and work on cannabis. Um, so how was working in cannabis different from working in liquor? You know, what's funny is there, there are not a ton of major differences in because it's a regulatory industry. And, you know, I always say America is a um, a country of precedence, right? Mm -hmm. So we use the Constitution to create new laws and, you know, amendments and all the things. And when you think about prohibition in this country and what went on with alcohol and the illegalization of alcohol, the very same things are happening in cannabis. So, you know, history is an indicator. You can kind of gauge what's going to happen in cannabis in the next few years. When you spoke about the BET experience, it's something that we actually, uh, we've been a part of. Mm -hmm. I wonder how often are you going to different activations and taking in uh, the experiences and saying, you know what, this is something we can add. Is that part of what you're doing as well? Like, I feel like we, when we went to the Super Bowl, it was the first time we were there as number one, as entrepreneurs and looking at the things that were taking place and say, this is something that we can implement. We're going into media rooms and we're seeing how things are set up and saying, are these are things that we can implement? Is that something that you've done throughout the, your career? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I have friends that have, um, you know, uh, in their wedding process, getting married, they start attending other friends, actively attending other friends' weddings just to see creative things that other people are doing in their process and how things flow. Same goes for us in business. You know, you you should be attending as many finance conferences as you can, as many lifestyle conferences as you can to figure out what consumers are looking for, what's missing and how you could do things different and elevate it, you know, for your own experience. Absolutely. Yeah. You draw inspiration from a variety of different things. Absolutely. Um, I think it's important to draw inspiration from things that have nothing to do with what you're doing either. So even, you know, talking about Nipsey Hussle and he was talking about when he um, read the book and it uh, talked about the hundred dollar cheesesteak mm -hmm. and Philadelphia. And he was, you know, really um, impressed by that. And he, that's how he started his proud to pay campaign. He started selling his mixtape for a hundred dollars. So you would think that a culinary experience has nothing to do with musical experience, but, like I said, you kind of, you can draw inspiration from anywhere, but it's important to just be aware and see different, you know, tactics that's being used and to see, okay, how can you relate it to your industry? But cannabis, so Viola, so what are the, what are some of the things that you actually did for Viola? So I was the CMO, um, for, uh, for Viola. So really one of the, the biggest things that I did during my tenure, well, there were a few things. So we were launching in new states constantly right at the time and so one of the things we had we had done around uh, the all-star uh in chicago um recreational cannabis became legal literally like weeks before all-star so it was a very unique time in chicago to say the least and so figuring out how to create brand awareness and brand equity within that market was a lot of fun and we had to do it really quickly because like cannabis changes every minute mm -hmm. like there's some new legislation somewhere in some city about cannabis, right? And so staying on top of that was really important. But it was it was challenging for us because it's not federally regulated. And so how do you create scale around a brand that has legal nuances on a state-by-state -state basis? So I cannot take product X in Detroit to Nevada or to New York or to Oregon legally. 
But so how do I call for the Viola brand consistently, no matter where I am? And for me, I, I, I wanted to develop a platform around what the brand stood for. And so it was about people, purpose, and plans. Right. That was what Viola's that's what Viola is about. And it's very a per, very purpose driven brand. And so we did a lot of social equity work in the marketplace. So reacclimating um, nonviolent offenders that were previously convicted for cannabis related crimes, reentering them into society was a huge part of our initiative, which is a national communication. We can talk about that to the cows come home. Right. That's not illegal. But at the same time, we're getting people to know what the Viola brand is, what the Viola brand stands for and what the Viola brand is doing to help uplift its people. So we did a, a lot of campaigning and, and volunteer work and community work around that. Um, and then we had a ton of lifestyle affinity and some fun, cool stuff that we did at a local level within each market. So understanding the culture of Detroit versus the culture of LA and who to align ourselves with. And we, we had a lot of fun. So this sounds like you're developing like leadership teams and policies, right? Like yeah. so you're it's inside of this role as CMO, like you, you're organizing and creating policy too, right? This this is what this sounds like. Absolutely. We're working with, working with the policy legislators, definitely. And it, it really is about helping people understand the audience that we serve, mm -hmm. the brand that we represent, and then how we need to leverage opportunities for, for that audience, if that makes sense, right? So if I'm in Detroit, these are the things that this community needs from Detroit to be represented properly in the cannabis space and creating programming that represents that. So how do you know if you're going to return on your investment? Like, Dollars. Point blank period. There's like, a number. There's a, yeah, it's a number. But so it's hard to track. So it's like, all right, if I, if I put a billboard in Times Square, right, and it cost me $20,000 to put that billboard in Times Square and I want to promote my album and my album sells 20,000 copies the first week, I don't really know if that billboard helped it's hard to track that. You don't know if the billboard had a direct impact, but you can do things like call to action. You can do now you can do QR codes. And so you can do all sorts of things to track specifically whether or not there was a conversion. That's called a conversion you're, mm -hmm. you're talking about within that specific initiative. But ultimately, what you're trying to do is create as many impressions for as little dollars as possible to get the return on the revenue. Um, so, yeah, there's a there's a lot of yeah. tracking that goes into that. Yeah, because I always wonder, like, if I'm putting, I mean, the highest levels, I'm putting a Super Bowl ad and I'm paying $5 million. What are the, what is the data? What are the analysis that's going to say, all right, this was worth it, right? Is it just the conversion of how many people come to the site? Or is it how many people buy the product? These are all metrics? All, those are all metrics. And again, it's what's important, right? So if aware, immediate awareness is the most important thing for your brand and you buy a Super Bowl ad, for sure, millions of people will see your ad if they didn't go to the bathroom. Right. They'll see it. But if you have. Ten million dollars and you spend 20 percent of it on a 15 second ad creative and, and um, ad run, is that the best use of your funds? Right. So you just have to look at how much money you have, how much time you have and what you're trying to get done with your audience. And then you figure out where to spend your money. There are some people that spend millions of dollars on a launch party. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, we've got a new brand. We're going to have a launch party. We'll have our investors there. We'll get some press. This is going to make the most sense ever. But it's like, do you spend 20 percent of your budget on a launch party? Because is that going to give you the runway that you need to run your brand for the next four years? Probably not. So just just being smart about how you spend your money and where you spend it. 
And as a marketing agency, you're getting the money up front, right? They're, you're getting paid for your services. Is yeah. there any a time where there is an incentive to have a campaign push further because there's royalties or anything like that? How does that work in the marketing world? Yeah, I mean, I think that d d depending on the opportunity, there there are tons of ways to to create equity conversations. Um, you can you can actually get paid per acquisition. Uh, depending on the conversion that we talked about earlier, um, you can, you know, be a part of, uh, participate in the, like the cap table. And if the company gets sold, you can, you know, be incentivized around that. So there are tons of ways to leverage, leverage equity through marketing. So Epitome Solutions, mm -hmm. what's that? That's my personal uh, consulting company. So when did you start that? So I actually started that in 2007. Believe it or not, oh, wow. uh, people joke and call me Olivia Pope uh, in the industry because <laughs> I, I get a lot of bat, bat calls. Hey, so I heard you do X, Y, and Z. Come help me with this in a really stealth kind of way. Um, so I've worked with a lot of different people, sort of ghost written for a few folks behind the scenes to help with strategy um, and help them with where they want to take their companies long term. So what do you, all right, so you just, if I want to hire you mm -hmm. as a consultant, what, what does that come with? What, can you lay out your services. Oh, okay. Well, we could be here for a while. But so um, I think the scope of services depends on, again, on the need. But for me, I do at the net net, I do enterprise leadership. So what that means is I can look at a company and I always say, are you building to sell or building to scale? Because if you're building something to create a legacy like uh, Coca-Cola, right, or Johnny Walker, one of those really big old brands, there's a different methodology that goes into building a hundred year brand than a brand that is looking to launch, get big enough to sell and move on what's to the next the, brand. some of the differences? Well, you know, you invent Santa Claus. Do you know Coca-Cola created Santa Claus, right? As we see him today, Coca-Cola designed Santa Claus. Coca-Cola has only changed its logo, I think maybe three or four times in the history of the entire company. So when you think about the decisions you make around a brand that is a legacy brand that's long-term, you tend to move slower, broader, and be more strategic about how you're, uh, you're building the brand versus a brand that needs to get big quickly so that it can be valuable enough to sell and move on. So I liken it to when you buy a house, if you're buying a house to flip, are you going to put an $80,000 kitchen in the house? Probably going to put a fifteen dollars or $20,000, maybe a $10,000 kitchen to make it look like a $15,000 to get the value up, flip the house and sell it. But if you're moving your wife and kids in the house, you might, you might buy an $80,000 kitchen because you're going to be there for a while. Same thing with business. So if you're building a business quickly, you want to be as efficient as possible versus if you're building a business for the long term, you want to be more. Ernest, what's up? You ever wonder what's around the next corner? What happens if you push just a little further? With Nissan SUVs, you're equipped to take your adventure to unimagined levels. Imagine the possibilities with a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada. Go ahead, find your next big adventure. And while you're out there exploring the unknown, the class-exclusive Google built-in becomes your ultimate co-pilot. No need to fumble with your phone. With Google Assistant, Google Maps, and the Google Play Store integrated into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue, your journey becomes seamless. Ask for directions, stream your adventure playlist, or send messages hands-free, all while keeping your focus on the adventure ahead. This just isn't any drive. It's a journey powered by innovation, where the road less traveled isn't just seen, it's experienced. The 2024 Nissan Line 
aren't just SUVs. They're your gateway to adventure, equipped with the tools you need to explore every corner of the world around you. Nissan, dare to do what others don't. Visit your local Nissan dealer or NissanUSA.com to find out more and take the first step into your next adventure today. Strategic and make longer-term investments. So I help companies so figure that Santa out. Claus? They did. Why did they create Santa Claus? To sell Coca-Cola? To sell Coca-Cola for the holidays. Hmm. So not Santa Claus, the story of Santa Claus, the way that Santa Claus looks to us, Coca-Cola created that. Matches the colors. In the early 1900s. And would they put it like in commercials and stuff? Mm -hmm. They used it in an ad campaign for the holidays. So there was already a story of Santa Claus. Absolutely. A story of Santa Claus. Norway or somewhere. Yes. And they just popularized it. They popularized this whole Kris Kringle with the big beard, big beard. hefty and the red and white and... It's all Coca-Cola colors. I mean, not that Christmas wouldn't be, but it's all, it was, it was brilliant branding. Was that Edward Bernay? You know what? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I can't remember his name out off the top of my head, but yeah. yeah. Edward Bernay. That's uh, Sigmund Freud's nephew, if anybody doesn't know. Mm. He's the one that is credited with really revolutionizing. Uh, he created PR. Mm -hmm. I love that. His, you know, he created the term PR because, um, it came from propaganda, mm -hmm. but propaganda had a negative connotation from the Nazis because mm -hmm. they use propaganda the campaigns. Propaganda so campaigns, yes. he said, I want to do propaganda. I want to help America. He's helping all of the Ford, all of these large companies. And it was propaganda, but he couldn't name it propaganda. So he had to come up with something that was appealing to the public. So it was public relations, mm -hmm. which is essentially propaganda. But that was his twist on it. He created um he created PR as we know it today. And you know where propaganda comes from? Where does propaganda come from? Queen Henry, King Henry VIII and mm. Thomas Cromwell. He needed to socialize the narrative that divorce was okay mm. so that he could marry. They changed the whole country's Mary, religion because of that. Because of it. The whole, uh, the and entire... they started the daily newspaper. Yep. So they gave the daily updates to the... Oh, you just learned something. <laughs> citizens and the king told the story that he wanted to tell so that he could justify yeah i learned that in history when i was young that was crazy like the whole entire country of uh england was catholic mm -hmm. and he wanted to get a divorce and catholics they weren't allowed to get divorces so he became protestant and as a result even now to this day there's very little catholics in in the uk it's a, it's a mostly um protestant country all because one person wanted to get a divorce wanted to get a divorce but then also with the eric, eric bernay situation is mm -hmm. interesting is that um they were talking about uh cigarettes so at the time like in the early 1900s like the cigarette companies was having a very hard time because women it was looked at as like unladylike to smoke cigarettes. So you got 50% of the population that's not smoking cigarettes. Now you're missing out on a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So he had to come up with a campaign to get women to smoke cigarettes. So he used women's rights as a way to get women. So he kind of made it a whole women's lib movement mm -hmm. of empowerment. And that was where you see that commercial. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So mm -hmm. it was like they it had nothing to do with women empowerment, but he used the women empowerment narrative to make people, women feel like, oh, this is like revolutionary mm -hmm. of me smoking. Like, this is like me, you know, breaking the norm. And in all reality, they just wanted them to smoke cigarettes. So it actually ended up probably giving millions of people cancer. Um, so it's just interesting how storylines get shaped when you think you're doing it for one way, but it's really designed for another way. So what's interesting about that, remember I said the paradigm doesn't really shift, the people do? 
It's the same strategies, right? Like you're still tapping into people's passion points to get them to connect to whatever story you're trying to tell. The key as responsible marketers is to figure out purpose-driven work around what you're doing. And I think Gen Z is way smarter now. They don't they don't want to be a part of your brand if you're not purpose-driven. They don't want to be a part of your brand if you're not doing something to save the planet or save humanity or do things that matter, right? There's just They just don't even want to do it. So you, as marketers, certainly we can use that methodology, but we got to really live it with this new audience because they're not, they want authenticity. Yeah, have there been times, because as you're saying this, I'm thinking, have there been times when you've been put in front of brands, then you say, morally, this doesn't even make sense. I can't align because it doesn't match my personal moral standard. Absolutely. And I don't do it. Yeah. I don't, I've never sold anything that I didn't believe in or market anything that I didn't have some sort of affinity or authentic, authentic connection to. Hmm. So what, what are some of the mistakes that happen? Because from both sides, from people, entrepreneurs and, and brands that are coming to you, that mistakes that they make, but even in, from your side, what are some mistakes that you see marketing and marketing execs make on both ends? Like I'm sure throughout your years, you've seen plenty of things, learned from plenty of things. What are some of the things that people should be looking out for? I think uh, businesses, we always have a saying uh, in my community of, of people, uh, me and Dia talk about it a lot. Uh, marketing is not for creative. It's not to, oh, we made a pretty picture now let's go hang it in an art museum. Marketing is to tap into your audience to get them to understand your brands so that when they're making purchasing decisions, they're purchasing your brand. Ultimately, that's what marketing is for. So oftentimes people get so caught up in the creativity around a brand or the uh, provocativeness, gravitas of the things that you can do with the brand. It's not sexy. We want it to be sexy. And it's like, not everything needs to be sexy to convert, to connect, right? So I think a lot of companies tend to overspend very quickly in the wrong things and hiring the wrong people to do the wrong jobs, right? So they usually hire heavy at the top. So they've got a CFO, a CMO, a COO, but there are no soldiers to do the work. And you spend so much money in overhead, you have no money for those people to actively and effectively move your brand. So you've got a million dollar CMO, but you don't have a million dollars in a budget for the CMO to market. It doesn't have a magic wand, right? You need the money to be able to, to be efficient. So I think people do that quite often. I think people spend money in the wrong places because they're shiny far too quickly and far too often. And, um, and I think people don't level set their mission and their purpose early on. If you walk into Apple or Google and you speak to the janitor, or you speak to the CEO, I guarantee you, every single person that's employed there knows the mission of the company. They know what the brand stands for. And oftentimes, people are not taking a step back, earn your leisure, to be able to lock in on what your mission statement is and your purpose and socialize that constantly with every single person you touch. Because if, you, if, if, if everyone doesn't know where you guys as the leaders are going, no one's going in the same direction. And, and so many companies miss that mark. Mm. But the best brands know what their mission and purpose is through the line. How, how about from the marketing exec? What, what, what mistakes are they making? Or have you seen many? made? I think the same thing. I think they're, they're oftentimes, I think with marketing executives, oftentimes we do 
what the easiest turnkey thing is that we know is going to work, right? So oftentimes, like for years, marketers would overspend money in television, right? Commercials, 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 buy TV, buy TV, buy TV, because they want to have the CPM story. So the cost per thousand story. So I've only spent five cents per eyeball. I'm a winner as a marketer. And it's like, yeah, some of these other mediums may be more expensive CPM wise, but they're converting to your point. They're creating the connectivity, the affinity, the stickiness that you need as a brand. And so many marketers tend to just take the safe route and, you know, do the media math and say, I'm going to run this Super Bowl commercial so I can keep my job. So I feel like the best brands never have to market. So I've, I've never seen a Lamborghini commercial, right? Mm -hmm. You don't really see too many, um, you name it. Louis Vuitton has ads, but mm -hmm. they're not like heavy marketers like that. Whereas like, you know, Deion Sanders, I think is doing the best job I've ever seen um, with social media. You, I think you want to get to a point where people are marketing for you. Yes. And I use Dion because the Louis and the luxury car thing, that's obvious, but he's doing it from a really organic standpoint where now all of these people in hip hop, everybody's reposting it. Everybody's going to the game. They went, that's marketing. Mm -hmm. That's free marketing. And he's aware of that. And he's, he's strategically targeting these people, inviting them into the fold and making them a feel part of the team, putting them on the sideline and they're posting it on their social media. And now every single person in the world is talking about Colorado and Deion Sanders. Nobody was talking about Colorado last year or ever. Mm -mm. Um, so uh, to me, that's the ultimate point, right? Where you, you actually don't do the marketing. Everybody else does the marketing for you and very influential people do the marketing for you. Hip hop is a perfect example of that Cristal, they, did the marketing for them. They didn't have to tell them to, they didn't get paid for that. They did the marketing for them. But in the Deion Sanders case, I'm going to offer you a counterpoint to that. Cause I think what you're saying is absolutely correct, but he's 100% marketing. You know, he's marketing. He's leveraging earned impressions, he, but he's not paying for it. That's the earned. That's what I meant by earned, right? So he's leveraging one strategy within marketing. But if you look at, so I'm going to give you guys an example. I randomly was sitting at home looking for something amazing to watch. And I saw the Coach Prime docuseries. I was like, oh, I want to watch this because I love Deion Sanders. I got so hooked into this storyline around this Coach Prime story and what he was doing at, um, you know, at the uh, HBCU and the, the guys and the kids. I just was sold. I drank the Kool-Aid. But the timing with which that Coach Prime <laughs> show aired and this Colorado season was very strategic, right? There's no coincidence that you have this four-part docuseries completely aligned with the, the new season of this Colorado moment as he transitions off, right? That's all strategy. And when you look at the docuseries, all the branding, right? I believe, I believe, Coach Prime, all these things, all of that stuff was... He's like, let me get some branding going because I have these cameras here. You look at uh, Dwayne Johnson and the XFL.com leveraging XFL within the storyline. He's leveraging XFL at Colorado. There's a bigger play there, I'm sure. I don't know what it is, but if as a marketer, I can see it, you know, and so, so he's he's marketing. No, he's, he's, he's just yeah. not doing the traditional, not traditional yeah. marketing. And that's the key. And he's getting 
He's marketing him heavily, but he's getting everybody else to market it for him as well. That's right. And it's because he's just authentically being him. And everybody's buying into the Deion Sanders wave. But he's also, like, Lil Wayne coming to Colorado, him putting a jersey on Lil Wayne, like, that's strategically done, right? Yes. But the reason why Dwayne, excuse me, the reason why Lil Wayne let him do that it's because he's yeah, Deion Sanders. Yeah, of course. Well, because and he believes in what Deion Sanders is building too, right? He's excited about where Deion Sanders is taking his career and 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 how he's in, inspiring these young men too, right? Like there's a there's a deeper connection for people, and Deion is is just capitalizing on it. He's tapped in. Yeah. This is a, this is a new segment of marketing. Yep. Do Do you see? I mean, it it feels like it kind of is influencer marketing, but not really. Mm-hmm. Um. The landscape of that, do you see it changing? Because as we've seen Instagram, it, I mean, it was at a certain point, you saw people getting paid to do ads, paid to do ads. You don't see that as much. Do you see the landscape changing? And if so, where do you think the next form of marketing is going? That's a great question. Um, I think that the the land the land influencer, excuse me, the landscape of influencer marketing is certainly changing. I don't think that it's going to go away. Um, I think the same way people are still getting endorsements because that's what influencer marketing is, right? It's non-celebrity endorsements. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the way that brands engage with influencers will continue to change. So for instance, when influencer marketing first sort of became a huge thing, it was all about big numbers, big numbers, big numbers, or macro influencers, right? If you didn't have a million followers, you didn't really get paid to participate with brands. But what brands realize is micro influencers have more connectivity their their uh, followers are more engaged they have better conversion and so brands are now going to micro influencers so people that have 20 or 30,000 followers on Instagram spending way less money but figuring out ways to to get inside of these people's communities and and ecosystems if you will so that has evolved um where they take that from here will probably be even more niche. And so they're going more vertical into the influencer marketing space. Um, I think as a marketing as a whole, where's like the next frontier of strategy, I, I would have to say it's going to be somewhere within the AI space, right? And just the, the whole Web3 AI community, that the way that people market in that virtual space is going to be the next frontier. You said uh, influencers, non-celebrity. What defines a celebrity? That is a really good question. I would say influencers are kind of our celebrities now. If you look at Logan Paul now and Kaisen, yep. even Kim Kardashian, right? She's like probably the first influencer. Yes, that became, became a celebrity. celebrity. Mr. Beast. Right. Um, right. So, yeah. Well, I, I think- what I was going to say to answer the question I, immediately that came to me were these people that are super, super popular for just being themselves. That's what influencers are versus celebrities usually have an affinity to some sort of vocation for the most part, right? Right. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Athletes, musicians, writers, artists, politicians, you know, different people that have an affinity to do something and be, have become popularized because of that thing. Whereas influencers have become popular for being themselves. Or they've been popular for their particular, so like, I think in Drew's Kai Sinet, he's popular for streaming. Mm-hmm. It's kind of become his own industry within itself, right? Mm-hmm. So now streaming 
has become like much watched TV. It's like television. Mm -hmm. People go on and they, they hundreds of thousands of people watch him play video games and talk to their favorite rapper. So he's kind of like a new age journalist. Right. right. He's like our version of Walter Cronkite. Like he, <laughs> he comes on and streams. I think that, uh, okay. I mean, that's what, but it's I, I, like, his, I mean, that, that's his industry that he's become synonymous with. Well, I think the part of that is that he's still being himself, mm -hmm. right? Like he, he started as doing pranks and now he does pranks and people are watching his stream. I think Drewski would be another, would be more of an ideal because he really is a comedian that was, on Instagram and became popular for that. And so his influence grew, yes. but he still was a comedian, was a comedian right? Right. So that would kind of, mm -hmm. he, he didn't create the industry. But he's like, just, he's changed the landscape of how that industry like now Kim, looks. Kim Kardashian, she's not, she didn't get famous for any one particular affinity to an industry. She just became famous. Because That's what I'm saying. She yeah. was herself. She's probably the first, first, right. Yeah. Celebrity, celebrity influence. influencer. Right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, like uh, Mr. B. Like Logan Paul is a celebrity. Lo Logan Paul is another one. He's a celebrity. 1,000%. And his brother. 1,000%. Mm -hmm. They didn't get, they're YouTubers, boxers, do a variety of different things. Yeah. They got entrepre they're entrepreneurs, they got the energy drink, but they're themselves and they've created industry around them. Yeah. Of, of who they are. Industries have been created around, around who them. they are as well. Exactly. Versus I make it to the NBA, I'm Kobe Bryant. Now I'm famous all over the world for being Kobe yeah. Bryant. I got right. drafted number one. Right. In any sports league, I'm popular. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bit of a difference. So, okay. Let's talk about the book. The book. So you publish a book, um, What Mommy Never Told You. So what what what's the meaning behind that title and what's inside the book? Yeah. So this book took 12 years to write. I wrote, I finished it maybe three and a half years ago, but it took 12 years to write because I, for a very long time, felt like my story hadn't arced. So I didn't have that moment where it was like, oh, things got tough. And then she wrote off in the sunset. Here's a book to talk about it. Right. And so I thought that's what I needed in order to 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 create this this body of work. But what I realized is people have constantly sat down to have this conversation that we're having right now. Like, wh what did you, how did you go from East New York, Brooklyn to working and doing some of the things that you've done and, and worked in? And I was constantly telling the story and I said, you know what, I need to put pen to paper and manuscript, you know, my journey. Uh, but one of the things that came out of it and why I titled it the way that I did is I realized that I'm first generation for so many things in my life. I was the first to graduate from college in my family. I was the first to go to Europe in my family. I was the first to buy a home in my family. And what I was realizing is there's some things that my parents just, they cannot teach me. You know, as a woman of color, I'm coming from a space of, I won't say lack, but I had a I had a late start just coming from East New York mm -hmm. and, and where I've come from. We we, we weren't uh, in we didn't inherit the knowledge that some of our contemporaries and counterparts perhaps are, are getting from their families and their grandfathers and their, you know, those those sorts of experiences. And while my mother did teach me a ton, there were just a lot of lessons that I had to learn on my own. And so this book takes you through the manuscript of my life and the lessons that I learned along the way. So each chapter has at the end the Pittman's rules and they're like the 10 to 20 things that I've learned about that specific topic. Um, and it's everything from career and finance to relationships to self-motivation, 
So like one one of the things, give us one example of what's in the book that you've learned. Well, I, something that your mother never told you. Some some of the things that my mother never told me. I mean, there are tons of examples, but really understanding that, you know, um, as a woman, it's important to have male mentorship as much as it is to have female mentorship. Um, I always, I was raised by really strong women and I, I have a huge girl network, but when I went, moved into my career, most of my mentors have been men. So people like Keith Klingscales, as I mentioned, Steve Stout early on in my career was an amazing mentor that genuinely just wanted to pour into my professional talent and help me grow as a professional. Um, Sean Combs, amazing mentor, you know, um, and be, not being unafraid to develop professional relationships with men is important for women as they continue to move through business. What's your advice for women um, navigating a male-dominated industry, which almost every industry is male-dominated, there's um, difficulties that come with it. Tremendous. You have to think about certain things that men don't have to think about. How to dress, right? Very important. How to carry yourself in certain environments. I had this conversation with, with uh, a female, like somebody invites you to dinner. It's, mm -hmm. it's awkward, mm -hmm. right? It could be out to drinks. It could be awkward. What you wear, it could be awkward. Flirting. There's a variety of different things that you have to kind of navigate through the workplace that there's really no set template or blueprint for it. Um, and like I said, men don't have to worry about that, but women do. And and it's like, you're probably just one woman or two women and there's 10 men. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's something that people don't really consider. Um, but it's an issue. I've seen it firsthand. Absolutely. So what, what's your advice for that? That is a great question. There's a, there's a nuance to the, the level set that young women need to, to, to learn how to to initiate very early on. Um, I think men do it sometimes when when men sort of alpha in the room and they you set your position in a room full of men. You guys know what I'm talking about. You come into a room with 10 dudes, you're gonna posture in a certain way so that your ranking is governed accordingly. <laughs> governed accordingly. Right? Well they're put. Gonna, they're gonna, <laughs> right? Well put, Erica. So the same thing, and I know this from being trained by men, right? I was blessed to be trained by men throughout my career. And so there's a way of being as a woman to position yourself as a person of power, a person of respect, no nonsense, but still approachable. And that has worked for me up until a point until I got to a sort of apex point in my career being very dominant in that way was powerful. But at a certain point, it worked against me. And I had to start seeking out female mentorship at the executive level because I had to bring back the softness. Because it was almost like I was competing with the men. Yeah. The exterior was too rough. Yeah. It was too rough. Mm. And so I had to come into this balance of, oh, no, 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 no. You see me. You see I'm grounded. You respect me. But this is not an alpha contest. Yeah. See the alpha thing. I don't. I don't agree with the alpha thing. I, I've never. I don't like to consider myself an alpha male. I'm just a male. Yeah. So I think there's two ways that I've witnessed like people at the highest level conduct themselves. One in that manner, which is like very loud and kind of obnoxious. But you you know that this person is a certain level of stature because it's like a mob boss, right? Like Johnny Gotti, like it's like when he walks in the room, like everybody kind of like fears him or has some level of respect for him. Yeah. So you could be extremely loud, or you could be extremely quiet. Yeah. Like this guy, Jay. But he's like, still incredibly alpha. 
Yeah, but just I'm just saying, just, but but just his demeanor. Yeah, he's more of an introvert. Quite, I, I, I see that a lot. With I see that actually more often, especially like the higher, higher, like billionaires, like them. They're usually very secluded Absolutely. and and nonchalant, Guarded. and quiet. But the, and, but but let's make a distinction though, because that doesn't. So there's a few things around alpha. I literally mean in the canine sense of alpha, right? So from an animalistic standpoint, when a pack of dogs come together there's a ranking order that naturally happens no, no, right for sure but so i didn't mean it in the alpha no, no, male no, but standpoint. That, but i mean and it's like but then also alphas are usually not loud in real life but i, I think the term alpha is just confusing sometimes because yes, yes. it's like it's misused. I, I think like if you did that's really like i love dame he's actually a personal friend of mine that's his personality but his way of being, I think people try to emulate that. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and they try to like be loud and stern and da 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 da. And I don't necessarily think that's a, that's the most beneficial way to communicate with people. Absolutely. But I see a lot of people that they think that that way of acting or that way of communicating asserts themselves mm -hmm. as the alpha and asserts themselves as the head. And, oh. but I think that that's not. So I don't know. I just feel like the Lo term alpha loudness does not equal power. So what is what does alpha equate to? Alpha is it's it's an anchoring. It's a it's a knowing. It's an assuredness in in your power to affect a situation. That's what alpha is. It's not necessarily how loud you are. It's your ability to influence at the highest level. And make the and make the decision that people are going to adhere to, and mm. you don't have to do that with words. Yeah, a lot of nonverbal communication. Tons of nonverbal communication. Yeah. Like I, I just as a woman, like I'm not looking at the loudest guy in the room. I want I want to see the guy that's like you know laid back and calm and poised and has it put together, and he's the one. Not this one over here jumping around <laughs> from cartwheels. Cartwheels. Not the guy topping the bottom of the You brought up the word apex of your career, yeah. height of your career. When I hear you speak, I can feel your energy. I feel like you're still in it. So yeah. it, I, I'm questioning, what, how are you seeing your, where you're at presently? Are, are you where you want to be? There's some more things that you need to check out because I feel like the apex hasn't bit, hasn't hit yet. I agree. It hasn't, but I, I am ascending, right? And so I, I like to believe, you know, you hit that that peak and you try to ride that peak as long as you can. And maybe it might plateau a little bit and then you hope to hit another peak. So that's how I think about apex. Um, and I do I do think though, that there is a, a stage in your career. There are stages in your finances, right? Where you've arrived. And then how do you elevate and take it to the next level, right? So you can become a millionaire, that's great. But then you can become a hundred millionaire and that's really great. Then you could become a billionaire. And now like that's something else, right? Mm -hmm. So those are all apex moments gotcha. within, within our lives. And so when I say I hit that apex peak, it's like if I'm in a C-suite conversation, that's a different conversation than being a manager or a director, yeah. right? And how so people receive you is different. Yeah. So, so when you're saying apex, you can have a few of them. Few of them. Gotcha. I, I hope. I hope to, and I hope you guys do as well. So you yeah. said something about relationships. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested to hear this because I used to be a financial advisor before I did yes. this. And when I was a financial advisor, seventy percent of my my clients were women, black women, and I hadn't I learned something that there's a lot of black women that make a lot of money 
like five hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollars a year. They they're like corporate diversity officers at Macy's and different things of that nature. And they're in their mid thirties and they're single mm-hmm. and they've never had children. And I noticed the, I started to see a pattern. And I started to realize that this is my philosophy. Mm-hmm. There wasn't an equal counterpart a lot, right? Because it's like their counterpart, their age wasn't making as much money, wasn't at that level of corporate. It might've been a, a good dude, but he's, you know, is a delivery man, right? Yeah. Or the person that is at that level is already gone. It's already taken. He's already married and has children. So for a relationship standpoint, I started to see that it was difficult a lot of times for black women that was rising up that corporate ladder mm-hmm. to, um, to get into a relationship or to, so I don't know what your segment in the book about relationships is but have you seen that and what's your thoughts on that i absolutely have seen that but i think that there's so nuanced so there's a couple things that go into that i think top line looking at it yes there's not an equal counterpart at every step for 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 a lot of these women at 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 a certain age um because because men can go down too right like men you can be 40 years old and date the 28 year old and nobody says anything that's another thing that kind of it's hard for a 40 year old woman to find a 28 year old man that she wants to be with right that that right because because women like to be able to learn from their men and Mm -hmm. and have leadership within their relationship traditionally not all women and so oftentimes men that are younger don't necessarily have those experiences um some women do and they do well in that space but not not most but i think it's, it's a combination of things i think it's and, you know, so many people with me, for instance, I'm single, I don't have children. And people ask me, like, what happened? And I'm a heterosexual woman, right? And so it's like, well, a couple things happened. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, I always say I spent too much time on the wrong relationships. That is, I tell any young woman, get in and get out. Get it's the OG classic. That's, That's what Jay-Z OG said. Classic. That's what Jay-Z said. Now you're speaking the language. Right? <laughs> now you're speaking the language. Get out. If it works, great. If it doesn't, move on as quickly as possible, right? Learn the lesson, <laughs> forgive, and move on. Um, so I didn't necessarily do that as often as perhaps I should have. But I also think, um, you know, being, creating a space to date and explore women that are, are driven in their careers they don't have time. Tend to forget about well, how not, intentional you need to be about dating. That's another thing. I'm glad you said that. They don't have time. They don't have time. They don't make time. They don't make the time. They don't make the Different. time. They have the time. They don't make the time. They don't make it because it gets exhausting, it. right? When yeah. you're when you're constantly coming up against the men that may not be it, equally yoked. Yeah. It, like, there's a list of priorities. That. Is, is that how we do, we're prioritizing these things? Like this is more important than this right at this present time? Yeah. I had a friend that said to me, very, very, very good friend. She said, you need to approach getting married like finding your dream job and the same way and you same way you would go and find interviews and have conversations you you need to find friends that have single friends you need to be in spaces where there are single men because of the the type of man that you want to marry is very unique so you're not going to just bump into him at a supermarket you've got to be intentional that's a fact and I thought it was brilliant when she said it to me way too late, but she had, you know, obviously expressed it. And I think the same thing happens in some of the, the situations that you mentioned. Just going back to my financial advisor days, mm-hmm. uh, I remember this guy was telling me, he told his daughter that, and he was like, what are you doing to find a husband? Like, 
you can't just wing it. <laughs> you gotta actually treat this thing like you are, like you said, like you're trying to get a job. Like you gotta actually have a set plan, blueprint, yeah. events that I'm gonna go to That's every single right. once. Because the places you're gonna run into are so limited at this point. This isn't mm -hmm. the days where I'm I'm gonna go to the library or I might go right. to the theater and I'm going to the art gallery. Like it's is, like is, I'm is, in the club. <laughs> is, is this why we potentially see um, a lot of interracial couples at higher, like the vice president and different things of that nature? I think so. I think so. Um, you know, people tend to date within their industry or date in what they're most familiar with and around. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that is the case. Um, and I think the, there's a... <sighs> I'm going to say something a little contra controversial, but I think that fundamentally... Black youth is not as conditioned to marry automatically the way some other cultures are, that's right? That's, that's not other cultures. That's, that's a fact. It's, it's, it's a like, physical show. No, that's a fact. Right? Yeah, they yeah, know yeah. they have to get married. You don't really have a choice. There's no choice. You're going to get married. It may not or, be today. Or you get disowned. Right. That's a fact. So, or it's going to be arranged. Or it's going to be arranged for you. Yeah. And it may not be today. It may not be in five years, but you're going to get married. They also know to be successful, particularly the, the men in those, those uh, cultures. cultures. Thank you know that having a wife represents something way broader. It represents responsibility. It represents anchoring. Like you think about, have we ever had a single president? We've had a widowed president, mm -hmm. but we've never had a single president no. ever. No. Right? So there's, there's little things that go into societal norms, societal yeah. norms around being married that don't necessarily exist automatically within our culture. So our, our young people don't know that we have to get married. Not, not that we have to, but that it would be beneficial for us to partner up and do some stuff together in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So there's a so we're at a disadvantage initially with the with the mindset, but then we're so busy trying to do it by ourselves, we forget to reconnect with each other and do it together and find someone to do it together with. So And while we're thinking about that, the time is passing every day. Every day. That we don't. And you're more set in your ways and your your requirements get a little more intricate. And you, know, it just, you, get, you get more comfortable being by yourself. Yes. Which just makes it harder for you to be in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And then there's always social media that can comfort you when you're by yourself. Mm -hmm. Poor things. Or Tinder. Tinder. Oh, God. Swipe left. <laughs> Tinder swindler. <laughs> Wait, but we have the book. You have the but book. But I can't let you leave because you've stepped into a new space, a space that we have some familiarity in. Let's talk about Here I Stand. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And, it's a and, podcast. Of course. Let's talk about that. How, how's that coming up? How'd that come about? What's the goal of it? What's the mission? Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah. So Tamika Raymond and I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Tamika Raymond. We've met a few times. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant woman. Um, Tamika had been talking to me about um, doing a podcast literally for three years just before COVID. And she's like, you know, we have a lot to say and we have a lot of experiences. And I just think that it would be really great if we could get this on camera. And she's like, and share, you know, share some some nuggets with the world that I think are a little more traditional, but at the same time, much needed. I think with all of the noise and the way that people are socializing these days it's like what is happening to the world there are women rapping about 
Yeah, yeah. Some really awful <laughs> yeah. stuff. And it's just Good word, color. <laughs> color, right? And the color of things that we should not be discussing in common vernacular. Like it's just some things that don't need to be said sometimes, right? And so in the spirit of freedom of speech and people having, a, you know, the ability to express ourselves, we thought, why don't we reset the conversation and start having some really fun conversation around life and the things that happen in life for everyday women that may not necessarily want to be celebrities, want to be all these other things on social media, but that are experiencing life. And as we continue to grow and mature, what that looks like for us. And so here I stand is just us having a really, really serious opinion about some not so serious stuff sometimes. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for you. joining us. And quick correction. It's actually Memphis Bleak that said that line. Uh, get in, get out. That's an OG, OG classic. classic. It was Memphis so Bleak. You're right. To, shout out to Memphis Bleak. Shout out to Miss Memphis <laughs> yeah. Bleak. Making easy money, Pippin, and stuff. Yes, Memphis. Uh, we ran into him at the brunch. Oh, I love that. Good guy. He is. I think his wife is actually a real estate agent. So I used to have them. Um, well, thank you for joining us. How can the people follow you? Social media and everything. Social media. Erica M. Pittman. I'm saying it. Sean Combs told me no one would ever follow me with that name. He's like, that name's way too long. No one's ever going to follow you. But people do. So Erica M. Pittman is my IG, Facebook, Twitter, thread. And this is my book, What Mommy Never Told You. There you have it. You get it on Amazon. Kindle, audio, and print. What Mommy Never Told You. Yeah. Um, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you guys for rocking with us. We'll see you next week. Peace. Peace. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with features and benefits like flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business, 24-7 support from a business card specialist trained to help with your business needs, and so much more. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.